Hello and welcome back to Interpreting India. 2022 so far has been defined by another variant, precarious geopolitical relations and a rapidly evolving technological landscape. This season we at Carnegie India are examining many of the challenges and opportunities that will confront India in the coming decade. I'm your host Shibani Mehta and this week we're discussing the ongoing economic crisis in India's island neighbor Sri Lanka, one of the worst since its independence. Meera Srinivasan talking about the Sri Lankan government's lack of planning to deal with an impending economic crisis reported, I quote, hospitals are putting off surgeries without enough medical supplies. Ink and newsprint shortages have forced newspapers to suspend editions. And schools have postponed term exams because there is no paper to print the questions. Close quotes. Sri Lanka's foreign currency reserve has virtually dried up and shortages of food and fuel have caused prices to soar. In early April, people took to the streets of Colombo in protest. Much of the anger for the economic crisis has been directed at the president and the violent protests have forced senior members of parliament to turn in their resignation. Why did Sri Lanka def- default on its debt? Were the signs of misgovernance visible long before the crisis struck? What political cost does it impose on the people? Joining us today is Meera Srinivasan. Meera Srinivasan is a resident correspondent for the Hindu based in Colombo. She has covered key elections in 2015, 2019 and 2020 and has also reported on the Easter bombings of 2019. During 2015 and 2016, she was a fellow at the IWMF Elizabeth Neufer Fellowship working with the New York Times, MIT and the Boston Globe. Um thank you Meera for joining us. Thank you Shubhani. So a lot is being written about what's going on in uh, Sri Lanka. We've been seeing a lot of images of uh, public protest. Uh, there has been a lot of uh, devastation across the island with people requiring essentials. Um could you tell us a little bit about what the current state is right now? Right as you know Shibani the crisis has been building up over the last couple of years ever since uh, covid uh, hit all of us um, so for sri lanka it meant that very crucial uh, foreign revenue earning sectors such as tourism then uh, export oriented garment and tea production and worker remittances largely from sri lankan laborers in west asian countries all these sectors were very badly hit which immediately led to a balance payments crisis so that itself was one of the major reasons to uh, aggravate the crisis that was brewing the other issue was that in late 2019 uh, just after president gotabaya rajapaksa came to power after uh, you know handsomely winning uh, the presidential poll he uh, opted his government opted for uh, sweeping tax cuts at that time which also in retrospect retrospect has proved very costly for the government so these factors the pandemic 
and the impact of the pandemic on these uh, crucial sectors uh, over time had really deepened a crisis that was already brewing. So yes, the government policy and then the uh, sweeping tax cuts, as I said, and then the pandemic impacting all these crucial sectors meant that all of Sri Lanka's uh, revenue uh, earning uh, mechanisms were hit very badly. And uh, uh, this coupled with the pandemic itself and how domestically it uh, stalled production, it uh, disempowered people, all this together sort of aggravated the crisis that was already brewing. From the beginning of this year, we saw that uh, manifesting in long power cuts, as you mentioned, and then uh, acute shortages of uh, milk powder, basic food items, and then uh, petrol, diesel. And this slowly began bringing people to the streets, citizens groups. So uh, pocket protests started much earlier this year than, you know, uh, larger protests began. So pocket protests were taking part in different parts of the country where people, small groups of citizens would just come to the street corner, hold placards, demand power, demand fuel, and so on. And that also meant that the Rajapaksa government became uh, very, very unpopular through this time. So this uh, sort of escalated further when one of these protests, which was held outside the president's uh, residence in Colombo, uh, you know, so a lot of violence uh, and uh, retaliatory action from the police at that time. Uh, the violence was not uh, triggered by the protesters. It was by elements that uh, are said to have been, uh, you know, deliberately uh, uh, put in in the crowd that instigated violence. And then police got uh, very violent against protesters, journalists who were covering the event and so on. This, in fact, led to this culmination of all these protests at Colombo Seafront in front of the presidential secretariat, what you all must have read about as, uh, uh, you know, Occupy Golfes and Gotago Gama is village in Sinhala. So they have set up a tent city of sorts, uh, calling it Gotago Village. And uh, protesters, as of today, it's day 60 of uh, nonstop protests going on. Of course, the size of the crowd has uh, uh, reduced uh, in recent weeks, but the spirit is intact. The core demand that Gota go home uh, is also very much part of the struggle. Meanwhile, uh, citizens are spending long hours in queues trying to get fuel, trying to get uh, uh, you know essentials. So uh, at the macro level, as you said, the country is in a very very uh, tricky spot of uh, you know no foreign reserves high import bill continuing, uh, you know, they are awaiting assistance from external sources. And at the household level, it means, you know, families are uh, having fewer meals. There are those emerging of malnutrition of children already because milk powder and several other basics aren't easily available or they are very expensive because of the inflation. So that's where it stands. It's uh, it's an extremely difficult time for Sri Lanka, both at the macro level and for citizens uh, on a daily basis. And, uh, uh, you know, both the government uh, that claims to be uh, taking the right steps uh, and uh, policymakers are uh, indicating that relief may take a while, uh, not anytime soon, not next month, not in six months. But uh, uh, everybody agrees that it has to get worse before it gets better. So I think uh, Sri Lankans are understandably very concerned, especially those who are not uh, 
you know, uh, well endowed in terms of assets or uh, property and so on, the working people are in a very uh, difficult spot. So that's where Sri Lanka is today. I'd like to come back to something that you mentioned about um, the displeasure of the people towards the leadership and the administration. Um, but before we get into that, this is an economic crisis. And like you said, it had it has been brewing for a while. So what are the sort of misdemeanors, either political or economic, that have that are responsible for this crisis? And is it fair to say, because a lot of uh, theories, I mean, scholars do suggest that economic miscalculations on the part of the administration, regardless of which administration, is a common thread? Well, that's uh, true, but not necessarily the entire picture. So it's true that the Rajapaksa government did not create the crisis. It inherited a fragile economy, though reserves were uh, not too bad at the end of uh, 2019 when the government changed. Uh, at the same time, there are some people within Sri Lanka economists asking this question, uh, which is that after Sri Lanka's civil war ended in 2009, uh, what was the country's uh, political and economic trajectory like? So if that question is asked, that led uh, them to look at, you know, uh, policy choices that the Rajapaksa government that held power for about a decade after the war. I'm sorry, about five years after the war, but five years before that in all a decade. So um, the policy choices then tell us that the government uh, went in for huge borrowings and mega infrastructure, big ticket projects. So uh, huge borrowings, again, from uh, primarily uh, the money market, international money market, through sovereign bonds, which again, uh, you know, led Sri Lanka to investing in big, big ticket infrastructure projects, and uh, many of which is yet to sort of uh, bear fruit uh, for the economy or for locals that live around these projects. So uh, one, of course, is that. And then the political uh, context now, as we know, Sri Lanka had a nearly three-decade uh, civil war. And after that, the war ending really did not, uh, you know, set off uh, a peace in a very substantial way. There was relief that the actual civil war, the physical war had ended. But whether minorities felt any safer, whether minorities felt any more equal than they were before, is a very important question to ask. And the answer is unfortunately no. Tamils are still demanding a political solution to the national question, uh, which is basically to devolve more political power to the provincial level, including to the north and east where Tamils live. And, uh, you know, the post-war uh, period also saw uh, a series of attacks on the Muslim minority. This is another ethnic group in Sri Lanka. They are Tamil-speaking, about 10% of the total population, but have always identified as a separate ethnic group. So we see from uh, you know the point the war ended that the uh, Sri Lankan state uh, has also been responsible and culpable for several of these attacks because you know many of those who instigated these violent attacks, be it you know prominent Buddhist monks or Sinhala mobs, uh, they enjoy impunity till date. So uh, the political context is also something that I. Contributed to 
you know, uh, Sri Lanka not being able to build itself economically the way it could have. And, uh, you know, I'm not comfortable with this word peace dividend, but I suppose there is something to say, there is something to gain from an actual, uh, you know, peaceful context where all citizens feel equal, all citizens feel safe. They're able to participate in the economy of the country, contribute to it and also benefit from it. So that didn't happen. So that is the sort of uh, longer uh, arc in terms of, you know, post-war Sri Lanka and the economic collapse. One is, of course, the policy choices, then the political instability. Uh, I, I don't know if it's about stability, but it's really that it wasn't uh, stable in a wholesome way. And, uh, uh, you know, there have been regime changes. And it's true that different governments have, uh, you know, continued this project of heavy borrowing, big infrastructure. And uh, uh, yeah, so that these are the main reasons over time that have also, in a way, contributed to uh, the economic crisis as we see it today. I'm glad that you mentioned 2009, because as I was doing my research to record this episode, I came across an Asian Development Bank uh, working paper which refers to 2001 to 2009 as the period of stalled reforms. And we see that following the end of the civil war, the post-conflict economic development really began to surge. Both uh, public as well as private investment were on the rise. And Sri Lanka's economic position by the end of 2014 looked fairly promising because the key indicators, particularly on the fiscal uh, front, showed a lot of improvement and it was helped further by the robust GDP growth. I mean, yeah, this misgovernance is definitely uh, one reason, one of the reasons that has led to this sort of uh, uh, very rapid collapse of the economy, rapid decline. But that alone, I think, can't explain the, you know, uh, fragility of the economy even before that. So Sri Lanka was very heavily indebted even before this crisis, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons that the crisis uh, really started manifesting in ways that it did. And Sri Lanka, as you know, decided to default on its uh, foreign debt totaling about uh, 50 billion dollars. So um, it's not only misgovernance, it's, uh, I think there is a need to question policy choices itself. Uh, Sri Lanka liberalized its economy in 1977, uh, just before the civil war sort of intensified in the 80s and so on. And, you know, the leaders of the island at that time had dreams of making Sri Lanka Singapore. And today, what has really, you know, stayed with Sri Lanka during the pandemic, what has proved crucial is, for example, their public health system. It's one of the few things that's left from the time of pre-liberalization, that even the poor can access a very good public health system in the you know, remotest part of the island has proved so crucial during the pandemic. Similarly, Sri Lanka has uh, you know, free education up to university level, meaning you know, till you finish your basic degree. So that again, um, gives people a chance to access quality education that's affordable. And, uh, you know, then this sort of rampant privatization and again, big investment. And when I say big investment, it's not just about ports and harbors, which we hear more about, especially the ones that 
China have, has funded, but also, you know, a series of expressways and highways, flush highways, and basically a lot of uh, physical infrastructure projects that did not prove commercially viable. So either, you know, there's a, a question of how it was made to work in the local system, where governance is one of the key factors, and also the choice itself to build certain projects and not certain others, and whether it generated enough, for example, jobs locally. What did, what did these big projects do to the local economy, other than revenue part itself? Did, it, did they generate enough jobs? Did they sort of, you know, um, give people a chance to participate in that development is a question. So, yes, of course, misgovernance is a problem, but also this promise of a liberal liberalized economy, a promise of open economic reforms. So whether that delivered fruit, and I think uh, uh, after four decades, uh, Sri Lanka's, uh, you know, uh, decision to open up its economy is uh, now left them with more questions than answers, I would say. Talking about ports and harbors, um, we see a lot of narratives surrounding China's role in this crisis and how the debt trap diplomacy essentially pushed uh, Sri Lanka into this situation. Um, how do you see China's role in this entire controversy and is it being overestimated by the West? Uh, I would say both by the West and, uh, you know, large sections of Indian media. The narrative of Sri Lanka through the China lens is something Sri Lankans are finding hugely problematic. Uh, you know, in fact, I often hear um, local journalists, colleagues and friends talk about how uh, there is no, very little appetite in India or the West to understand Sri Lanka in Sri Lanka terms. And uh, everything is about China and Sri Lanka at some level. So they are a bit frustrated with that. And uh, one can appreciate why. So uh, to start with, uh, uh, let's uh, get the facts uh, straight, uh, which is that uh, uh, China is definitely one of the top bilateral bilateral creditors to Sri Lanka, uh, but Chinese loans account for about 10% of Sri Lanka's total foreign debt. Chinese debt is not the biggest chunk. The biggest chunk is, in fact, uh, the sovereign bonds or borrowings in the money market, the international money market, capital market, and uh, those originate, ironically, from the U.S. So, uh, in a way... Uh, we have also, I think, have to question that narrative. But this is not to say that Chinese investment is, uh, you know, um, not, uh, it, it is questionable in the sense that this is huge uh, investment in, again, ports, very strategically located ports, uh, airports, and, you know, that sort of investment. And uh, we know that the Hambantota, the southern Hambantota port, uh, was given to the Chinese on a 99-year lease. Uh, because Sri Lanka could not repay its debt. So it's a debt equity sort of swap. Though China has said that actually that swap was used also to pay off other debt. But this is basically to say that any bilateral help, I think, has to be questioned. Definitely China, because of the extent of its presence here, uh, its known strategic interest. But we also have to ask the same difficult questions of any bilateral creditor, I think. And Sri Lankans are doing that. For example, um, India has uh, traditionally been a very important development partner for Sri Lanka. India's contribution post-war, immediately after the war, 
for example, in building 50,000 houses through a grant for war-affected Tamils and uh, Tamils living in the uh, Central Hill Country in the T Estate area, I think is really appreciated by people. And you know, so uh, it's the same with several other uh, you know projects, like they have a very good ambulance program uh, backed by an Indian uh, fund. So um, that's on the one hand, but when India also shows interest in investing in strategic projects like, say, the Trinco Mali oil tank farm, uh, the agreement for which was signed earlier this year, or the new energy projects. Now, another question that's emerging in regard to India is, you know, questions that we heard earlier being asked of China, which is, uh, for example, the Adani Group is the main investor in a port container terminal uh, project in Colombo. And they've also signed up to uh, build uh, renewable energy uh, units in the northern part of the island. So it's well known here that the Adani Group did not enter through competitive bids or through any sort of internationally acknowledged system. They came in basically as India's nominee and the Sri Lankan government agreed to those terms. So, you know, several civil society people and uh, political opposition have asked again about Adani's backdoor entry. and. They say that is India also resorting to, uh, you know, measures that it earlier accused China of resorting to in the neighborhood. So there are these questions emerging of different, uh, uh, you know, bilateral creditors. But again, after this crisis uh, worsened this year, from the beginning of January, India has extended up to uh, $3.5 billion of assistance through credit lines, uh, currency swap. Uh, loan deferment and so on, which is which has all proved like really crucial. And there is a narrative in Sri Lanka that when it really came to a crisis, it was India that um, you know swiftly responded, and they value that very much. But in the same breath, some of them link this assistance to India's growing interest in strategic influence within Sri Lanka. So uh, it's I think a more complicated narrative than a Chinese debt trap. And that would not tell us all these other dimensions of the story. But as I said, it's important to uh, ask, you know, questions of any investment, any bilateral uh, assistance uh, in a country that is uh, small in size and is reliant on all these partners in a very uh, big way. Thank you so much for bringing out this sort of nuance in the argument. I think uh, all of us just pay attention to the headlines and. Uh, assume that to be the whole truth. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit more about China. Um, when the, Sri Lanka was approaching the IMF uh, for assistance in April this year is also when China sort of um, assured that they would provide humanitarian aid. But like you said, there is a popular perception that the crisis is a result of China's engagement in Sri Lanka. So has there been a change in how the Sri Lankan people perceive Chinese assistance? Well, I mean, China has also been a, a very important uh, uh, partner for Sri Lanka during the pandemic. We know India provided some vaccines, but the biggest chunk of assistance during the COVID years came from Beijing or Colombo. So it amounted to about $2.8 billion in different ways. Except uh, there has been a complication with one of their uh, uh, currency swaps. 
that there are conditions to when that money can be accessed and Sri Lanka is trying to negotiate that. But in terms of perception, I don't think uh, there has been a, a very pronounced sort of perception shift in relation to Chinese uh, response to the crisis because I think Sri Lankans also realized that the Chinese helped during the pandemic. I mean, uh, uh, a majority of Sri Lankans got uh, Chinese vaccines, uh, including those of us who live here. And, uh, you know, so those those uh, instances of assistance were very uh, timely and important for Sri Lanka. And uh, in terms of perception, well, actually, when you think of India and China, uh, I think it's important to recognize that both have very different kinds of uh, uh, relationships with Sri Lanka. Uh, India, for example, has uh, historic, civilizational, cultural, linguistic ties, but also very close uh, political engagement. Now, India has been a very uh, uh, you know, prominent arbiter in times of war. As you know, the Indian peacekeeping force was in Sri Lanka on, you know, uh, it was a military deputation. And uh, so India has been seen by, you know, a lot of uh, uh, the Sinhalese as an interventionist big brother power, right, over the years. But at the same time, people do recognize the very similar, you know, culture, cuisine, language, all that the two people share. At the same time, with China, I think they haven't really been politically involved in Sri Lanka the way the West or India, uh, you know, you can talk about the West or India in that regard. So China has been a more sort of uh, uh, largely commercial partner, a trading partner, a business partner, an economic development partner, that sort of thing. So these are the two sort of different uh, images. And when you see um, you know, Sri Lanka coming up in the Human Rights Council or any other international forums, India has a certain role and China, by default, that's uh, Sri Lanka directly and through its uh, allies. So uh, in that, uh, China is a more sort of reliable political partner for the Sri Lankan uh, state, right? Uh, but India has taken different positions at different times. So what this does to perception is that Therefore, you know, India has a more uh, problematic uh, perception among majority Sinhalese in uh, Sri Lanka. And uh, all this baggage is not easily forgotten. But with China, I think increasingly, as the Rajapaksa clan got unpopular, you know, over corruption, family rule and perceptions like that, there was also a more obvious linking of the family to China because they are known for their, especially uh, former Prime Minister Mahinda Rajapaksa is known for his uh, you know, uh, pro-China uh, policy. And uh, in that, I think more Sri Lankans are now critical of the nature of Chinese investment. For example, there is a, a you know, the Chinese port city just uh, by Colombo seafront. And when a, a legislation, a port city bill was being debated last year, there was a popular resentment to that because Sri Lankans felt that here was a law that was being enforced that insulated this China-backed, uh, you know, real estate from any law that pertains to Sri Lanka, uh, other than, you know, tax holidays and all that. They were very uh, skeptical of this development and there were public protests questioning that and so on. So there is a perception shift of China as well. And with India, there is a, a definite acknowledgement of all the assistance that has come in uh, at the time of this crisis. 
but that old baggage somehow wouldn't go as my sense so it's for india it's uh, it's a lot more tricky and it's complicated i mean also the relationship with tamils is different to that of sinhalese and i mean the political leadership of these communities and even within the tamil community some people have a lot of trust and affection for india because they have familial links and connections and they value indian intervention or support there are others who are you know very cynical of uh, india's past uh, attempts to try and resolve the conflict so that's a very long answer to your question so again like we started this conversation talking about public displeasure and the protest did lead to a change in the administration the prime minister had to step down uh, there was a churn within parliament of ministers being sworn in and then resigning the following day uh, but essentially there's new leadership in sri lanka do you see this administration doing things differently well uh, so yes at one level it seems like things have changed and there is a new leadership but uh, president gotabaya rajapaksa is still very much in power and uh, he has continued to defy calls for his resignation and then uh, uh, the current prime minister ranil vikramasinghe came um, as a uh, you know um, he was hand picked by the president after you know other options didn't seem realistic and uh, mr ranil vikramasinghe is the only member of parliament from his party and he too did not get elected to the legislature he got in through the proportional representative uh, you know vote system of uh, sri lanka so it's not really uh, a new leadership because even members of cabinet there are many old faces and uh, in a way protesters are saying they are fatigued of this you know uh, new but more of old sort of approach and in a way this does not answer their call the you know core demand of protest is that the president has to step down taking responsibility for his government's blunders that led to this crisis so um, this is not seen as uh uh you know a decisive shift or a change by people in sri lanka but of course uh the international community uh, the imf they all see mr vikramasinghe's appointment as uh bringing in some semblance of stability and uh, uh you know good enough to implement proposals of the imf uh, negotiations are still going on but i really doubt if any of this is going to have uh, credibility uh among people of sri lanka and whether you know this will uh, uh you know have that whether the government will be able to win the trust and confidence of people especially when they have to resort to some tough decisions perhaps more austerity who knows what the conditions are going to be so uh in a way i do not see uh, the road as uh, you know straightforward or easy for this government it's going to be very hard and uh, unless they take on board people's uh, concerns they cannot you know respond in ways that would in ways that people would find convincing but clearly they haven't taken people's concerns on board or the president would not be in power so long i wanted to ask you if this creates and what does this say about the economic stability of other developing countries in the region um, we see certain commonalities that the pandemic uh, russia ukraine war which is led to an inflation in oil prices and of course the 
problems of misgovernance and fragile public uh, institutions. Is there something that can be sort of learned from what's happening in Sri Lanka for the rest of the neighborhood? I, I definitely think so. One is, um, as I said, you know, uh, an honest reflection of economic trajectory. Uh, so this uh, liberalization in Sri Lanka's case and this, uh, you know, what it has meant for the local economy, for example, did Sri Lanka, you know, focus enough on domestic production? Did Sri Lanka diversify its exports in all these years? It's still reliant on very few sectors. And, uh, you know, in terms of industrialization, value addition, services, you can't say that there has been, you know, advancement uh, at a pace that was imagined when economy was opened up. And the other point being, uh, you know, in South Asia, I think, uh, there is a thrust on you know becoming these modern developing economies aspiring economies where technology plays a big part where you know modern um, sort of uh, uh, service sectors play a big part in the economy but i guess sri lanka is also telling us to ask if uh, you know there is enough attention paid to our rural economy in our context i think the rural economy is still very much at the heart of uh, uh, economic activity, though in GDP terms, it may be much less in terms of contribution, at least in Sri Lanka's case. But uh, you'd have heard, you know, this uh, president's uh, policy shift last year to go organic completely by banning chemical fertilizers overnight has caused uh, production uh, so much in the sense that uh, today Sri Lanka is reporting a 50% drop in paddy cultivation. And we are talking of you know, a real threat of uh, starvation and uh, food insecurity coming up in the next few months. So um, what does it mean for our context to also keep your uh, rural economy, uh, you know, engaged in the national economic uh, uh, system? And uh, that is another aspect that I think we can look at learning from Sri Lanka. And the other thing is also about the conflicts, right, in, in terms of politics of other very uh, sort of troubling but still very stark example of what majoritarian politics, what authoritarian governments uh, can do to the larger economic well-being of the country. I mean, when more and more of your citizens feel they are not equal enough and, you know, they feel vulnerable, what does that do to your country? So at one level, Sri Lanka had become a middle-income country a couple of years ago, uh, but you know, today the uh, situation is so bad. And as I said, the only things that people have at the moment is what's left of their social welfareist politics, pre-liberalization in a sense. So maybe that's also a question to ask for our context in terms of what is the economic traje trajectory that our countries can opt for given the you know, presence of uh, the uh, rural economy in the larger economic uh, scheme and then you know, uh, the inequality, inequality is still very much an issue. So how are our leaders going to factor in all this when they craft economic policy is a question. Now, the United States has kind of shifted focus into the Indo-Pacific and there has been a lot of activity from the US in the region as well. 
we saw the uh, Biden administration engage with ASEAN. There was the announcement of uh, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework uh, through the Quad. Is there any hope that Sri Lanka holds for the Quad to kind of step in and help manage this crisis? Uh, yes, uh, Shibani. In fact, uh, Prime Minister Anil Vikramasinghe has openly sought, uh, you know, help from the Quad. He says he would like the Quad to lead this initiative to set up an international consortium of aid for Sri Lanka to bail the country out of crisis. And uh, when the Quad summit happened recently in Tokyo, uh, the Prime Ministers, the leaders of Japan and uh, uh, India met PM Modi was also there and uh, they decided that they will work together on Sri Lanka. In fact, uh, the government of Japan put out a statement specifically saying that they would work with India on Sri Lanka uh, and especially focused on this crisis. So it's uh, very significant, I think, that, uh, you know, that this uh, uh, geopolitical uh, dimension of how Sri Lanka might receive help. So at uh, you know, on the one hand, you have an IMF package that's on its way and Sri Lanka is still negotiating that. And, um, you know, uh, Sri Lanka has hired uh, legal and, uh, uh, you know, financial experts, uh, foreign experts to advise them on debt restructuring. But it's still not clear whether bilateral creditors, especially China, will agree to something or a program that the IMF prescribes for debt restructure. But Sri Lanka is in a place where it can't afford to choose sides because today in parliament, uh, Prime Minister Vikramasinghe said Sri Lanka needs at least six billion in the uh, immediate term, you know, to wade through the next six months with its import bill. The fact that production has gone down means Sri Lanka will have to import more food, more fuel, so on. So um, it's a very, very tricky spot for Sri Lanka, which is quite vulnerable already. So one is this uh, reliance that uh, has been created with IMF and therefore with uh, the countries that are associated with that. And on the other hand, Sri Lanka has a huge outstanding debt with China, though it's only a portion, like I said, 10% of the total debt. It's big enough, nevertheless. I mean, a couple of years ago, Sri Lanka already owed uh, China about $5 billion. So how is Sri Lanka going to negotiate restructuring this debt with bilateral creditors, with multilateral lending agencies, and balance this geopolitical uh, you know, pressure coming from the Quad, perhaps, on the one side, and then from China on the other. And there will be questions if you know, Sri Lanka will be invited to join a forum like what President Biden has just mooted, and what those choices will cost a small country like Sri Lanka. So it's, uh, I think the crisis is going to persist for at least a decade by uh, the estimation of some economists. And uh, meanwhile, the geopolitical dance in Sri Lanka is going to be something uh, that uh, we must watch closely. And uh, unfortunately, it puts Sri Lanka in a very vulnerable spot. And every foreign policy move of Colombo is going to be very crucial in determining its future, its own agency, its sovereignty going forward. I'm glad you brought it to the agency of the country themselves. I think that's a point we often forget. Countries may be small in size, but the geopolitical impact can be massive. Uh, and 
like it's been proven, uh, unfortunately, with Sri Lanka. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.